Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, April 10th. Well, we're well into April. Still waiting yes. for that warm weather to hit. <laughs> We've had some warm weather. We've had April showers. It's rained every single day. It has not rained every single day. Close to it. But it's rained a lot. Yeah. And today it even hailed. Wow. <laughs> and it's uh, cold. Which I feel bad because for those who celebrate... Uh, Palm Sunday, Sunday yeah. they, they may have been coming out of church and gotten a hailstorm. hit with a hailstorm. A biblical sign that things all, are not right. All over the bonnet. That's right. But there's some significance to that, I'm sure. All right. So here we are. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. It was a a fun week, right? Yeah. I mean, and uh, we finished the NCAAs in fine form. Yes, we did. It was exciting. Yeah. It was a very good game. Yeah, it was an yeah. excellent game. So, uh, and I must say that uh, our friend Javier came very close to being right. That no, he didn't. Duke, yeah. Duke made it pretty far. Duke made it very they far. They made it to the final four and they lost in the yeah. semis. That's, uh, that's, that's not even... I think that's far. That's farther than any of your teams went. I didn't have any teams. I was. Oh, uh, that's what you say now. I was uh, open minded. Ha, right. I picked them to lose to, to North Carolina. Which they did. That was the best game of the tournament, North Carolina Duke. And uh, people got so excited about that. And far beyond the issue as to who's going to make it to the final of the tournament, the people seemed most excited about the fact that North Carolina was playing Duke in a nationally televised game and they're bitter rivals. And it was arguably going to be Shashevsky's last game, which indeed it was. So it had so many implications that went beyond the NCAA tournament, and then North Carolina gets to the final and loses in, a, in an excellent game. But the North Carolina-Duke game was a fantastic, fantastic game. Yeah. All right, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And now we're deep into the baseball season. Well, we'll talk about baseball. <laughs> Some of us are deep into in, it. In just a minute. But I, we wanted to start with something that got people very excited, I thought. Yes! More excited than I would have thought. Here's the headline. Yes. From New York Times. Help wanted. Adjunct professor must have doctorate. Salary, zero dollars. Right. Yeah. And I looked at it and I said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds yes, about right. right. Yeah, the posting for an adjunct, uh, assistant adjunct professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, set high expectations for candidates. PhD in chemistry or biochemistry, strong teaching record at the college level, three to five letters of recommendation. And then there was a note that the job would be on a without salary basis. Yeah. And as if to underscore it, it also said applicants must understand there will be no compensation for this position. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, and uh, not surprisingly, there was a um, well, you say not surprisingly you say among not surprisingly. academics. Yeah. And under pressure, UCLA apologized and withdrew right. the posting. Yeah. So what? So what are they going to do? They're going to reoffer it for a couple thousand dollars. I mean. It, the uh, no, they're just going to change the wording. I, I, well, I don't know what they're going to do, <laughs> Probably. But, but the idea, you know, the supply and demand with respect to academics and positions like that is such, particularly if you're calling it adjunct, you can fill it with a so-called adjunct, you're not going to get paid anything. And whether it's zero or it's 1,000 or 2,000, it's, it's, uh, that's well, the way it is. Yeah. Uh, the, the, well, the article goes on to say free labor is a fact of academic life. Yeah. And uh, mentions that uh, um, this is referred to as a contingent faculty position, which comprise 70%, if not more, of staffing 
uh, at colleges today. You mean adjuncts? Or yeah, contingent, contingent faculty yeah. is an umbrella well, term well, adjuncts, that does for generally part-time and untenured right. college teachers. Right. Not so, not zero pay. No, look, they're look, not all zero pay. Look, I'm an adjunct professor, <laughs> and I I don't get zero pay, but whatever I get, it's not worth talking about. It might as well be right. zero. Yeah, yeah. And, now and they, they have excuses. Okay. They don't need excuses. They have excuses. They say, yeah. you know, that, uh, I mean, and some people may see this as the association with a particular university or the particular yeah. job may be, may be thought of as compensation. Because they prestigious. can use that to get the prestige right. yeah. uh, and use it to get other jobs, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, but it's really a little shocking to just uh, ask for all those credentials with the promise that there will be no pay. Well, 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 let me let's back up half a step. If they had given the normal adjunct pay, which I'm telling you, I'm sure is very low, uh, there would there would be no story. So it's just the idea that they, they were naive enough or dumb enough to, to, to go for an zero. Ad. No, no, no. To run an ad for zero. It's a pretty standard practice. Okay. I think zero. And, uh, zero was a standard. It no. happens a lot, and no. there there were you know examples of it in this article. Um, and one woman said, she, you know, she uh, felt she was offering something valuable to students. Right. She wanted to do it. Right. Um, she was getting um, uh, good experience. She, right. she was getting something to put on her CV. Right. Uh, and but then she did find out that there were other there were grad yeah. students doing the same thing. Who were getting paid? That were getting paid. Yeah. But, all right. But that's just an anecdotal thing. Look, I think the real point is this: the market is such that um, there are people who are sufficiently interested in teaching for whatever reason that uh, they're not going to demand much in the way of salary. There's more supply than there is demand. Uh, and again, I'm right in that uh, category. I mean, I'm, uh, I enjoy teaching. I like teaching. I don't care. The prestige thing doesn't mean anything to me that you described a moment ago. But, um, you know, I feel I have something to offer and I want to teach. I'm not doing it for the money. And there are enough people like that who are doing it besides their normal job or they're doing it once they reach retirement age, that the market is flooded with supply. If the market is flooded with supply, then you're going to have a very low compensation. It's not more complicated than that. But here's my question. Why? What? Um, since there's no pay, yeah. right, it's going to, jobs like this uh, will attract, won't attract a fair amount of people. Sure. Right? Right. I mean, it will change the dynamics of, of who wants to be a teacher yes. and who's able to be a teacher. Right. And uh, that may really severely harm the quality of teaching. It already has. Okay. But you know where it's felt more? I don't think it's felt so much in uh, in undergraduate education. It's felt in uh, secondary school education, elementary school education. The fact that teachers are so poorly paid across the board accounts for the fact that there's a very uneven quality of teaching across the board. And many people rail about that, saying if only the the pay for teachers was increased and it was a much more attractive wage, you'd get better schools because you'd get better teachers. Uh, and that's where I think the the principal problem exists, a very similar problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solution for that, I don't know. I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one that no one's really quite figured out. Uh, we can get into it, but the, the challenges are that it's, it's very difficult to evaluate teachers in a way that everybody finds acceptable. So that uh, someone could say, look, you know, we're really going to raise pay and get better teachers and get rid of the worst, the, the lesser teachers. You'd have a heck of a time doing that. 
That is a problem because yeah. you have the sort of popularity contest right. uh, aspect right. am, among students. Right. You know, just saying, "Oh, I love this teacher. Right. She's easy. She's friendly. Right. She's interesting, yeah. or, or she's not." Uh, I hate this teacher. You know, they grade too hard, uh, which doesn't always tell the t- whole story Absolutely. of what a good teacher is. Right. Um, so it, you're right. And, it's a very hard thing to And you have union analyze. rules, union rules also. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very, I think an economist would say it's a terribly inefficient, suboptimal labor market. And it's one that one would really have to apply oneself to with some real rules and discipline to change in such a way so that they rewarded uh, better superior performance, but there's a lot of elements to that. Um, so uh, where, where you're left is that it's, this is going to be uh, poorly compensated, and you're right; they're, they're, they're going to attract fewer people than they otherwise would. No question. Well, about maybe it. they'll have to. You know, the schools will have to improve their um, understanding of teachers' love language. <laughs> now, it's, yeah, that's actually the wrong way to go. Uh, well, no, but it, not totally. Okay, so when I was starting out in the food business yeah. years ago, and I was talking to some experienced uh, business owner, yeah. and I said, you know, uh, we were talking about uh, the problem of hiring right. decent people. And uh, I said, well, you just, you know, I said, we're going to try to pay, you know, as much as we possibly can. Right. And he just shook his head at me and he said, you know, we ran a... Uh, uh, we did some one ads, a uh, certain wage, yeah. and uh, we had respondents. None of them were very good. Yeah. Okay. So we raised this, the proposed uh, wages, mm-hmm. and we got the same people applying. Right. Just at five dollars more an hour. Right. And we, uh, so, how do you get around that? How well, do you because, how do you attract? Well, that doesn't tell you anything except the fact that the original offer was so low that there was a tremendous gap between that. And what would be the level at which you'd attract more quality people? So the point is, because the difference was so great, the $5 didn't bridge the difference. That's all that's happening there. Look, the, the reason I shake my head at love language is that's fine. You might better appreciate uh, the teachers and give them more in terms of psychic rewards, but you still need a living wage. And, and again, when you're talking about elementary and secondary school teachers, they're barely getting a living wage. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem. And, that's, and obviously zero is not a living wage. And you, you could give it many pats on the back as you want. Or, you know, the few thousand dollars. Again, the zero to me is a little misleading because it's, it, to me, there's not much difference between zero and 1,000 or 2,000 or 4,000. Because you can't live on it. Yeah, it might as well be zero. I did always wonder how um, my colleagues, where I taught, right, right. you know, how, how are they raising families? You can't. Because a lot of them were younger than I am. How, you have to be in a position you know, where you don't need How are they buying houses and raise, you know, raising families? You know, it's, it's not like that in all countries. They always say in South Korea, for example, it's different. But I haven't studied it. It's, it's one of the biggest problems in education. It's compensation. So in any event, Winslow Homer, I saw a controversy there. I don't think you see a controversy. Well, 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 all right. So let me just set the stage. There's uh, two, a couple of things going on. One is a um, what's termed by Roberta Smith a spectacular um, exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on paintings by Winslow Homer. It's entitled Winslow Homer cross currents right also an article in the wall street journal about a um new biography of winslow homer winslow homer american passage by william cross okay so what did you see as the conflict the conflict was this the uh roberta uh smith article 
was saying, you know, Winslow Homer is really progressive. People don't understand this. But if you look at his painting, you see he's progressive politically. In particular, you see his painting about the slave ship. Um, no, that's Turner. That's Turner. But see, there was something about, even so, she saw him as progressive for other reasons I can't even identify. The slave ship painting is Turner. You're absolutely right. Which was the article next? Yes, next absolutely. Right. No, but but the Roberta Smith article said he's progressive. Uh, and he well, did, what did you, well, what did you think? And he the, did have because the biography it, was saying. Well, what they say here is that he's progressive, and they cite a painting of his of a freed slave. Uh, I think it's a freed slave. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, someone's on the boat. He's leaned back or something like that. You remember the painting? All right. And the uh, article in the journal said, you know, what he uh, Winslow really features are strong individuals encountering resistance, okay, having to overcome obstacles. That's what he's all about. And they cite that painting, and they cite at the same time a painting of a Confederate soldier and, and someone else. So it takes a different <laughs> political tack, or at least they, they describe what they focus on in Winslow is not political, but they say he's focused on a personality trait. That's the difference. Which one said that? The Journal. Sort of. Yeah. Thank you. So, n- not really. Not really. It's in the headline. I can no, read it to no, you. No, no, I just, yeah. Um, it's not in the headline. I'll, I'll find it for you. A brush with reality. Yeah. All can. right. Just calm down. Calm down. Yeah. Um, anyway, so what Roberta Smith seems to be saying to yeah. me yes, is. is that, and here we go. Um, oh, uh, this revelatory exhibition takes a fresh look at the themes of struggle and conflict in Homer's art and simultaneously, in my view at least, clarifies his development as a radical painter on the brink of modernism. All right. Well, that's a painterly uh, criticism. All right, right. So she is really seeing him as That's, that's one a, paragraph. A, no, no. I mean, I think I that's find. the... You know, yeah. All right. We're not going to go through this now. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right, and that's really what she's talking about. The, I mean, she spends a great deal of her review yeah. um, talking about, uh, you know, his uh, various formal attributes of his painting and uh, really looking at the forms. Uh, the, uh, he, she says, he vigorously ad- handled paint to add power to his forms to push his final seascapes to the edge of abstraction. His penchant for dividing canvases edge to edge, strong horizontals, emphatic diagonals, etc. And she quotes uh, Donald Judge, uh, 20th century uh, sculptor, and, uh, you know, who was looking at him as, you know, uh, the essence of American style. But then she says, you know, that's okay. But when you look at uh, his observation of nature, atmosphere, weather, wet on wet painting, and the tendency to paint uh, from life, he's more of an impressionist, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you know, so it's very interesting to me. And, and, and I can link this with your, you know, um, looking at the Turner exhibition as well. Yeah, talk about that. In the sense that, uh, you know, you there's a kind of flopping back and forth between uh, perceiving these paintings as, in a formal sense, uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, looking at their um, sort of uh, uh, construction, uh, their composition, their design, etc. But is it and yeah. um, looking at them in the context of their subject matter? Now, for a while, subject matter has kind of been king, and that's one of the reasons that uh, Winslow Homer is uh, is fascinating. Yeah, uh, because he he did actually, and the biographer points out, uh, paint uh, a fair number of. Uh, Black Americans right. in uh, in his painting, not just Americans. He was also in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, that one uh, that painting you were citing of the uh, black man in uh, the boat, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very dramatic painting. Uh, that's uh, from one of his trips in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and he, one of the interesting things that the uh, biographer points out um, is that he painted the faces of uh, his. Um, black subjects with a lot more complexity mm-hmm. and seeming personality mm-hmm. than that of his white subject, subjects who seem to be kind of a blank slate okay. Let me now uh, ask you a for couple, the viewer to fill in. Let me ask a couple of questions if I can bridge this to the non-art historian listener. Okay? You say for a long time subject matter is king. Uh, is that no longer the case? I, you know, it's still very much the case, as you can see with it currently trying to make things more relevant. Yeah. So uh, subject matter context is uh, important to people right now. In fact, everything about, uh, you know, what we were encouraged to teach um, in the schools I, I was at, uh, we're saying teach about the history. Show where this art fits in. Show what this right. art okay. reflects right. so about still, what's going on. Yeah, still you know, matter. forget yeah. about uh, you know, forget about uh, composition and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I, I don't know how you really do that hundred uh, percent, uh, but uh, I, I was a little bit encouraged that uh, Roberta Smith is here, so besotted uh, by the formal qualities of Winslow Homer's painting. Now, but now for those when you say the formal qualities, now you're saying that beyond subject matter. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because that's your uh, that's your that's your sense that's your instinct. You're more interested in that. In, in oh no no no! I love the stories. You know yeah. uh, that's you know, one of the things I love about the the uh, ancient art and yeah. the Renaissance art, etc., is the stories, the context. So why do you say you're about their so lives, why do you say you're encouraged? But I because uh, uh, I think uh, to some extent formal. Aspects have been kind of forgotten, mm-hmm. but that is part of what creates the art. Yeah. Okay, that's what makes it art as opposed to just uh, a record, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that I think is what makes art. Okay, no, takes art to the level that stays with right. us and inspires Let us. Let me ask and, you one other question. Last yeah. question, and then you can tell me it's a terrible question and forget. How would you compare? Uh, the Homer work with the Turner work that you see discussed there. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, Turner comes before, uh, by about 50 years or so, right. uh, half a century earlier. Right. He's British. Uh, he's painting in Europe. He's also, I think, very influenced by, uh, you know, what's going on in France. Um, yeah. and, but, uh, you know, what's interesting there. You know, I was going to say this in uh, it, yeah. in the next uh, yeah. bit, but what's interesting there when you're talking about uh, Turner? Now, the review of the Turner exhibition, which originated at the Tate in England, 
Uh, but it's uh, now come to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, is that from the get-go, people were, you know, quite uh, either offended by the formal aspects, his use of paint, how he used paint, you know, to uh, indicate atmosphere and weather, mm-hmm. et cetera, and so forth, and kind of, you know, in some ways neglected uh, the context uh, more so. Um, and Jason Farrago, who writes this review, you know, makes a very big point of pointing out that uh, in the um, his very famous painting of the slave ship that is now is actually at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts yeah. and that uh, you know to a large extent people looked at that as just an amazing painting totally forgetting about the context which was uh, a depiction of a ship that was throwing overboard mm-hmm. uh, the um, slaves right. in order to recover the insurance value right. of those people as cargo, right. uh, rather than, uh, you know, uh, try to, some of them were ill, etc., rather than nurse them back to health or, you know, etc., and to say it was, you know, due to an event, loss of cargo. Uh, so, um, anyway. Uh, well, you know, I, I should mention. So the review course. makes a very big point of that, uh, you know, uh, there was this whole uh, context to that painting that you easily sort of miss by focusing on the sort of abstract well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it appearance is, of it. It's kind of hard to miss. So my knowledge of Turner, of course, would only come from a movie. So we saw that movie, Mr. Turner, 2014, it turns out, uh, with Timothy Spall. That was quite the... Uh, that was an interesting movie. Yes, and he was an interesting person. Um, but anyway, so uh, Winslow Homer, uh, he starts out as an illustrator... And uh, he ends up, uh, he doesn't, um, not to say he ends up, he works his way into, uh, he's embedded at the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So he's illustrating the Civil War Mm -hmm. because that was, uh, you know, they were just beginning to do photography. So in order to uh, depict what was going on in battle, you had illustrators. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of progresses from illustrating to, I guess, painting and uh, but his knack for his honing of those powers of observation mm-hmm. uh, are still incredibly valuable even though you look at his paintings and they're pretty most of them are pretty stark mm-hmm. you know this they're very sort of simplistic in terms of subject matter and become more and more um, focused on uh, Nature and according to the biographer here, uh, William Cross says he conveyed a profound sense of loneliness, mm-hmm. which he equates to the later development of or associates the later development of Edward Hopper, mm. and that you know is yeah. a real kind of American so theme sitting out in the field. Or whatever. Uh, yeah. But anyway, and you know, I, I should just say that. Two stunning exhibitions worth seeing, it looks like. Uh, Winslow Homer at the Met, and if you're up in Boston, the um, Turner. Turner. Okay. J.M.W. Turner. Uh, yes, J.M.W. Turner. So, baseball, I know you want to talk about that. Um, season started, Mets are rolling, things are as they should be. 
Uh, a couple of articles which are kind of interesting. You know, there was something actually Granger pointed out to me. There's an article that I told Granger I think was tongue-in-cheek saying baseball is boring. It should be nationalized. Otherwise, it's going to go out of business. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you get you hear talk like that all the time. Uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's actually not true. I mean, look, I don't care. I don't care if anybody's interested in baseball. I'm interested in baseball. But um, baseball does uh, pretty well. Uh, surprisingly well. I mean, they're, uh, let's see, they had the figures here for uh, 2019, and uh, baseball is basically uh, outdrawing all the other sports. Uh, baseball, let's see, I'll give you the figures quickly. In 2019, uh, it was down, yet baseball still drew more than, because of down because of the pandemic, still drew more than 68.5 million fans dwarfing the combined totals for the NBA and the NFL. Baseball is averaging 28,000 people at a game. There are a lot of games, but 28,000 is a substantial figure of people. Baseball is making enough money that uh, you're seeing the salaries that you're seeing. Uh, I mean, the latest being Aaron Judge turning down the offer of seven years at $30 million per, because it's not enough. That was yesterday. Um, per it, year. Per year. $30 million a year. Yeah, for seven years. Not enough. And uh, and you know, even the stuff you see now, you saw Apple was doing the streaming of the, the Met game the other night, uh, and people were up in arms, like, now I have to subscribe to Apple, and now Peacock is going to get certain games. Well, as another article points out, you know, these people doing the streaming, they're not dummies. It's <laughs> not like they're, there's a reason they want to get into baseball, and they're paying a lot of money to do the occasional so baseball game. I just can't believe it. Because... They need content, and baseball does draw sufficiently to make it more attractive than other streaming shows at the I, at the cost I, point. I just don't get it because people outside it. of you and, you and your friends and your cronies. I'm telling you, I don't know anybody who watches baseball. Well, you got to get out Maybe more. my mother. It's the art history department that has given you, I, you a know, skewed view of the world. At some point, you know, the baby boomers will not be around. Anyway, here's another point about uh, you say that, but it's not going that way. And the here's an interesting article about baseball itself, and I won't go into detail at this point. It's just this: one of the big surprises of last season was the San Francisco Giants. Who was not considered? They were not considered a terribly talented team. Certainly not as talented as the Dodgers. They actually won the division over the Dodgers, which is crazy, given the people they had. And they had a first-year manager. Well, he had been a manager of the Phillies before, Gabe Kapler. And there's an article in the Times saying, "What did he do differently?" And what he did differently, among other things, but principally, is he had more coaches. Had more coaches. Mm -hmm. The average baseball team has six coaches. Mm -hmm. hitting coach, fielding coach, first base coach, whatever, six coaches. He said, you know something? I'd like to hire a bunch of coaches. He ends up hiring 13 coaches, okay, on the theory that it's like uh, in school, if you're a better pupil to teacher ratio, the kids learn more. That mm -hmm. was his argument. Okay. And he was right. The article says that all these, all these players benefited by the additional coaches, and there's no substitute for being in an atmosphere where there's always coaches around, where people are always talking baseball, they're always available to give tips, to, to give you feedback, to listen to what you have to say as a player. It creates an entirely different in-person atmosphere. And believe it or not, they believe that is one of the principal reasons the Giants went from a mediocre team to a superior team. 
That's probably cheaper than having more players. It's incredibly. (laughs) They're not getting $30 million a year. Uh, And not only that, and it runs against, guess what? What you're reading today about people going back to the office, right? The idea they're saying, no, no, what you want is more people around. You want more senior people around. You want more contact. That's the way people learn. That's the way they develop. There's no substitute for that. Well, that's what the Giants experience stands for. So uh, there you go. More senior people around. You need to, you know, that's that's exactly what you need. That's the key. That's the key. Well, we knew that. (laughs) Even if they're only adjuncts getting paid practically nothing, that's what you need. Yeah. Back to me? Uh, I don't know. Is it? Yes, it is. The Detroit Symphony. Right. You wanted to talk about that. Um, This is, I read an obituary about Ann Parsons, who sadly died at the age of 64. Um, complications of lung cancer, and she uh, was the president and chief executive who revitalized the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in the aftermath of Bitter Strike. Um, and uh, I just thought it was a really interesting story. You know, her age, she's not that off, um, different in age from us, and uh, I think she had a really interesting job. And, uh, you know, I wish I had been smart enough to think in terms of a job like that uh, years ago, you know, kind of a job that bridges arts Mm -hmm. and um, business or, you know, Mm -hmm. administration or whatever. And she, you know, aimed for that from the get go. Really? Yeah. She, you know, her dad was in finance and he wanted her to be in finance. She went to Smith. Right. When she says she had played the flute, she goes to Smith, yeah. and she ends up uh, becoming the manager of the student orchestra at Smith. Right. Okay. And then when she graduates, she says to her dad, "You know, I I want to give uh, I want to work in the arts somehow. If if it's not working after a year, um, I'll go back to banking." Right? Yeah. So she was working in the summers as a bank teller, etc. and so forth, and she you know, makes it work. She was a fellow in the American Symphony Orchestra and uh, then ends up at the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington as an aide to cellist and conductor Rostopovich. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from there goes to posts in Boston, uh, L.A. She's at the New York City Ballet. Um, so, but, you know... It's arts administration, basically. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, too, was that, you know, that was just like barely... A um, vocation then was I mean I understand it clearly was she was you know people are doing it but it wasn't one of those things you know do I want to be a fireman or a policeman or whatever let me ask a couple of questions yeah first of all when was the strike the strike was in two thousand eight I think okay Um, and did it really threaten the orchestra is that what she said that's what the headline seems to suggest but I don't really know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Strike began in 2010. Okay. okay. And uh, it lasted six months. Wow. Okay. Right. And uh, she, you know, um, a strike erupted in October 2010 after the orchestra, citing the difficult economic environment, right. proposed steep reductions in pay and benefits. Right. The musicians said the cuts would destroy would the ensemble's it. high caliber, right. and they led a spirited campaign to oppose them. And so she had to hang tough. 
She oh, had to, maybe. as her board yeah. told her, you have to be the bad guy. Right. You know, and she managed to. They came to a settlement where there were still salary reductions, but uh, they, you know, the players were able to hold on to their health insurance and pensions. Right. And she, her and her um, takeaway from this is, this can't happen again. We cannot um, threaten the quality of the uh, symphony. Well, but um, that's nice, but if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. This is what she did. Right. Um, she, uh, she, she raised more money. She raised more money, sure. actually. <laughs> she and she decided she started doing a lot of clever things. Streaming. She was, uh, you know, one of the early adapters, adopters of uh, streaming yeah. concerts. Okay, she created more concerts. Um, they traveled abroad. Okay, right. so she's working on the reputation and exposure right. of the orchestra. Right. She increased music education in the surrounding area, city, and in the yeah. suburbs. And yeah. you know. To a large of their amount of their audience would come from the suburbs. Right. She was sending um, players uh, out to the schools, mm-hmm. you know, to you know play and become acquainted. She was having them do concerts out in the suburbs to right. make their notes. So she really beefed up yeah. um, both the their reputation. And just, you know, oh, here, the here. demand right. for their, so, you know, and but, I mean, it was really you know, here, ahead of the curve in solving this problem. Sort of. Let me, let me, let me oh, give you the okay. other side of this, okay? Yeah. As a, by total coincidence, uh, a childhood friend of mine uh, is still, has been in the Detroit Symphony since 1976. Okay. Uh, Stephen Molina plays the bass. And um, I just listened to a, a podcast with the Young Orchestra participants or interviewing Steve, the old hand, mm-hmm. and he's talking about history. And he's a very positive guy. And he's not talking about this woman. He's not talking about the strike. But as it turns out, he was the liaison for the uh, uh, players uh, in dealing with management for years. Mm-hmm. That was a part of his job. Mm-hmm. They weren't interviewing about that. They're talking about music. Mm-hmm. Okay. This was just recently. And yet he said a few things which are relevant to this, including that... Uh, Apparently, the, the Detroit uh, Orchestra was quite, you know, established when he joined in 1976. Uh, they did tours. I know this. they're saying this suggested it might be a new thing. They did a six-week tour, I guess, in Europe in the 70s or something like that, or in the early 80s. And they used to go on tour, generally speaking. So she's kind of reviving something that they did yeah, before, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, and he's very positive. He's very, Steve's very positive about everything. But... Um, he, you know, they talk. About, he talks a little bit about the challenges, but he's all about uh, the music. And I guess it's like everything else. It's economics. You know, can it be supported or can it not be supported? Uh, he doesn't seem to have come out of it with any bad feelings about any anything, which I guess is... Well, what is your point? My point is, is... What is the other side? No, there's no... Well, the fact that they've always done these kind of things, the touring stuff, that's not new. That's the other side of it. That that's not a any any kind of development. No, well, the, the streaming was new. Okay? Yeah, but I don't. Nobody, think they, not you know, everybody was getting into that. I don't know. If they make any money streaming. What you do with streaming is you no, increase your fundraising. Right. Yeah. That's making money. Dan. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. She, ex, all the things she was but doing. 
All right. I'm not, the, I'm point, not... the point is, she didn't just give up. And the point is, she didn't say, she didn't hang tough and say, all right, you, you know, we'll just get cheaper players. Yeah. Forget it, guys. Yeah. Um, she found ways. Listen, I'm not putting this woman down. That's not my point. Okay. I think, uh, you know, it's both sides have to work together to solve the problem. Uh, what was more interesting to me, uh, and this is totally personal, it's nothing to do with Ann Parsons, but more to do with Steve Molina, is this gave me reason to tap into this guy who I hadn't really, you know, uh, focused on uh, uh, for quite a long time. It's someone I went to grade school with and then in high school. And you talked before, and I'm listening to you talking about, you know, another career path, in this case, arts administration. So this is a guy, you know, I was in fourth grade with, and then, and then I was in high school with, who becomes a symphony musician. And he's talking in this podcast about how he became a musician, starting with playing the flutophone in fourth grade, uh-huh. probably sitting next to me at Robert's <laughs> email elementary school. And certain guys walked around and tapped people on the shoulder and said, you're pretty good. You should be in the orchestra. No one tapped me on the shoulder. <laughs> they tapped Stephen Molina on the shoulder. And then he talks about playing the accordion growing up, which I remember Steve playing the accordion growing up. Yeah. And then... Well, to yeah. be pointed out... Yeah. That uh, your high school, at least, I don't know about your grade school, but your high school, at least, was predominantly Jewish. Well, and he was one of the few. Yes, Gentile. Italian. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that doesn't, he doesn't bring that up. But he talks about that. You're right. He was was one of the few non Jewish kids in the school. I don't know how that makes sense that he would be playing the accordion. Not you. Well, I don't know anything. You know the more about the accordion. Have a big tradition in your family? No, no. no okay. But he's he's just laughing because when he's talking to a bunch of three or four other people in the orchestra, and they all say, "Oh, the accordion—that's the craziest thing ever." But in any event, so he ends up playing the bass and talking about having to lug the bass around, which I remember, and uh, and how he got in. And then when he talks about his life, first of all, he took a very different career path than I did, obviously, right. and, and much more creative, you might say, than becoming a lawyer. Um, that said. In a little bit, there's some similarities there. He talks about, first of all, he's been with the organization for 40 years. Yeah. As I was, number one. Number two is, he's showing them pictures. He said, you know, one of the things we always did together, we had outings together. He's showing, like, the orchestra outing. We played softball together. He's showing this, oh, yeah, we went, you know, some biking together. Right? And they're, these new kids are saying, wow, you did that? That's crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, that reminds me of our experience at the law firm. Yeah. And then the funniest thing and they obviously, the young people he's talking to are not athletic. He says something about, well, athletics. And he says to them, you don't understand. When I grew up, every day we got up, we went on the streets, we chose sides, and we played ball. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how I grew up. And, uh, you so know. So that's funny. Parallel lives. Well, in a yes and no. Mm-hmm. Completely different. As you say, the arts administration path is very different. Playing the bass in the uh, Detroit Symphony is very different. But... You know, some common threads. So, anyway, it was interesting. Um, well, I'm not surprised that he was the liaison. He probably had a very good education. He was very well at, spoken. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he, he plays tennis now. I was a better tennis player than him, but they talked about him <laughs> like he's a great tennis player. I guess he's kept that up. Uh, all right. So, quickly. So, uh, anyway, an interesting story. Um, yeah. Yeah. For, for us personally. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you found that because it got me looking up, looking Steve up. Um this thing about investing, I won't go into it in any detail because we're kind of deeply into this, but uh, Ned Johnson died. Ned Johnson headed Fidelity. Uh, Fidelity is where a lot of people put their money. And uh, here's why. Uh, in uh, 1972, when the market uh, was in the doldrums, um, 
that uh, inflation was on the rise, uh, things weren't going so great. He helped pioneer the money market fund. All right. And, you know, people, as the article in the Times is headlined, he turned the country from a nation of savers into a nation of investors. And so you remember this. And suddenly everybody was saying, I'm buying a money, you know, I'm buying a money market fund. Right. right instead right. of uh, just putting it in the bank. Right. Yeah. And because in the government's savings account. Yeah and, yeah. and the government set the rate on the savings account. Money market was always a point or two higher. And they said, what am I doing? Yeah. And what really set it free was people said, well, how do I get access to my money? And Ned Johnson said, tell you what, you can write a check on Fidelity. And now you have a checking account off the money market fund. And that's what made it go. Because people mm-hmm. wanted to write checks on it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of genius. genius. It was. And then what went beyond that was that uh, then the government created the uh, the uh, IRA, Individual Retirement Account, in 1982. And people had money. Uh, and, they just, and they developed their mutual fund practice. And people were putting their money to mutual funds in 401ks. And that changed everything also. So... Now you are able to easily own a lot of the market through money market funds in a diversified way. Uh, and the idea of, again, what our parents grew up just putting their money in the bank, mm-hmm. you know, which is a completely different way of looking at it. Um, so that's a huge change. And, uh, and it's funny, there was an article at the same time in the Wall Street Journal about uh, uh, profit sharing. You know, people talking now about whether you could have workers should benefit from the profits of the organization uh, and there should be profit sharing. That's considered a progressive thing to do. Well, uh, in this article, Jason Zweig points out that there was a huge initiative to do this in the 1920s. And what would happen was when people on the assembly line received profit sharing or shares of the company that they were working for, they found that there were benefits and that uh, once they were shareholders, they were less likely to go on strike. They were less likely to demand higher wages because they saw themselves as participants in the larger enterprise, mm-hmm. right? The problem is when the market crashed in 1929, these people's shares weren't worth right. anything and it didn't work out for them. And more to the point, the idea about rewarding people and having them rely on the notion that they're getting shares in the company they're working for turns out to be a terrible strategy for them. And the reason is this, and this is the way Zweig puts it, and it's obvious. In the long run, the odds of making money in the stock market as a whole are very good. But the odds of making money in any single stock are poor, particularly in a stock of a company that just laid you off when you need to rely on the money. So profit sharing seems like a good idea and that sort, but it's not really such a good idea. You're better off having the cash and putting it in your 401k or IRA and putting in some kind of investment vehicle. Let's diversify. And that takes you back to Fidelity. All right. Just quickly, um, kind of a fun story about bees and mowing the lawn. Right. And uh, whether you apparently were not onto the idea that bees are in crisis. No, I wasn't. Okay. Yeah. Catastrophic decline in North America, nearly one in four native bee species is imperiled uh, due to habitat loss, pesticide, climate change, urbanization. So, um, uh, people, you know, some people are trying to do something about this. And one of the things that's happening uh, is the what's called No Mow May, which apparently is quite popular in the UK. 
And uh, there's an article here about uh, this going on in Wisconsin. Okay. And the idea is that you don't mow your lawn during May when all these different... Oh, really? Um, Whoa, Granger's going to love that. <laughs> Granger's the king of not mowing the lawn. I You're just, right. He's, he's, I'm, I hope he's listening. Okay, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, when you do this, it allows, you know, uh, things like dandelions uh, to bloom and the bees can, uh, you know, fly around and do their thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, let's see if I have uh, a better... Does this mean also you don't mow in April too? And you don't mow until June? No, well, ideally you would never mow, right? Lawns are just not great for... um, uh, Bees yeah. and what do you call it? It's not fertilization. What is it? What is it? Uh, it could be well, I, um, pesticides. I don't know what, what you're worried. No, about. no, no. It's um, pollinization. Pollinization. Yeah. Okay, they fly from flower to flower yes, to yes. flower. I, I remember from the king and I. They talk about bees that. are very important yeah. for this. It's not just because we need bees. We need the, the things bees do. Right. Okay. They go from tree um, to tree. And to tree. so, uh, right. so anyway, this article was about uh, you know driving through this town and how beautiful it is with all these lawns bursting with random you know weeds uh, uh, instead of uh, you know the smooth green grass. Now, I just thought it was sort of interesting because we you know uh, we are related to people you know who are no mo people. Right? Who's that? Bob, your brother. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well Bob, uh-huh. I don't know. I haven't checked with Bob. And, and there was a person here saying, you know, uh, in this case, a community got together and they had people signed up and it was for the month of May, etc. Yeah. But in some cases, people try to do it on their own and sometimes they get in trouble. For not mowing the lawn. Um, yeah. yeah. After a few weeks, she awoke. This one woman uh, in uh, Wisconsin awoke from a nap to find police officers pounding on her door, yeah. um, apparently to ascertain that she was not dead. You know, the, I the guess her neighbors mowing. are saying, you know, must there's the only reason she yeah. must not be mowing is because she's dead. Yeah. Um, and in the end, not all her neighbors liked her shaggy lawn. And in fact, one of them mowed it without permission. Well, it's, uh, um, it's free mowing. Just to get rid of it. Yeah. So, but anyway, it is kind of a positive thing. Um, the um, two of the instigators of this, uh, people from, you know, local universities, uh, did some research and found out that in this area, the the no-mo maylons had five times the number of bees and three times the bees' species. Oh, all right. Um, well, well consider that. I don't know what your plan is. but Yeah, no. I don't know what it is. Maybe we should um, designate part of the yard as no-mo. All right, we'll discuss that offline. So finally, the last point, have to do with Nehemiah Persoff, a guy the age of 102, an actor, who apparently, uh, he's kind of a rough-looking guy, uh, who was ubiquitous in a bunch of television shows, from Gunsmoke to Twilight Zone, Gilligan's Island, Columbo, Hawaii, Five-0, blah, 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 blah. Big career, but he also played good guys, including um, Barbara Streisand's uh, uh, father, in Yentl. So there you go. So yeah. His range, and it turns out he was uh, Israeli. Or I shouldn't say Israeli. He's old enough that he was born in Jerusalem before it was Israel. Um, but the one reason he comes to my attention is this. And at the times, it's funny the way they write this, but I'm glad they did. They say he, his, he is involved in one of the most famous scenes in all of movies. And I'm reading from the Times now. 
one of the most famous film lore's most famous conversations when Marlon Brando tells Rod Steiger in the waterfront, I could have had class, I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. And that, of course, was in the cab, the famous cab scene in On the Waterfront, one of the great scenes in the movies. And Nemai Persoff was the cab driver. So when they pull out, and they, you, they pull out from the, the dialogue between Rod Steiger and Marlon Brando, and the, pull up to the foreground, you see the face of the cab driver in a very menacing look. And that's the end of the scene, and that's Nemai Persoff. And it's, the image is burned in my mind, <laughs> even though he was just an anonymous yeah. actor who doesn't say anything. He was mentioned on a lot of the news shows. I is that think. true? And they didn't mention... They didn't they, mention that? No, they didn't oh, mention that. Oh, that is... That's quite an image. Quite an image. Okay, that's all I had. You had to indulge right. me with that. And uh, that's it. We got to get going. We got to see our grandson. We're on our way. Yeah. Right? All right. Here we go. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you again next week. <laughs>